Welcome to Put Your Heart Into It, the HVC podcast centered around educating providers and staff about common clinical scenarios so that we can better treat our patients. Podcasts on this account are meant for educational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical diagnoses or advice. If you have any clinical symptoms or medical questions, please consult a licensed healthcare provider. Let's get started on this month's podcast. Hello, everyone. Um, you know, really proud to introduce uh, our guest speaker today at the HVC podcast, uh, Dr. Dan Winston, who uh, many of us know he was in Gainesville, Georgia, really helped pioneer um, cardiac surgery, um, thoracic aortic surgery up there, also a lot of valvular procedures along with his partner, Dr. Wolf. And um, recently they've joined uh, Northside Hospital, which has its main cardiac surgery center at Northside Gwinnett, which is in Lawrenceville. And I think um, they're going to help build a center of excellence there. I know we've sent a lot of patients there and we're going to be excited to hear from him. I just had a few questions. I think a lot of our audience would like to hear from a heart surgeon since most of our hospitals, we don't have on-site heart surgery. So um, I think it's a good way to introduce um, us to Dr. Winston. Um, uh, Dr. Winston, tell us a little about yourself. What do you, what, what, uh, what's your sort of specialty? How'd you get interested in heart surgery? Sure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And, and by the way, this is my first podcast. So uh, correct me if I say something wrong, but thank, thank you again for having me. Um, I, uh, I, uh, I grew up in Texas. I went to undergrad in Texas and, uh, and, uh, went to medical school at university of Texas, went to Emory from there and, uh, pl initially planned on doing urology actually, and did uh, two years of general surgery and really loved my cardiac surgery rotations and did, and actually went on and did a full year of urology. And then I realized once I was in urology, that despite, uh, having some very, uh, close colleagues and close friends in urology. I just missed uh, the cardiac surgery field. I was fortunate. I went back uh, into general surgery at Emory. I was fortunate I got invited back uh, into the program and, and finished my general surgery at Emory and went on to do three years of cardiac surgery at Emory, which I'm very pleased that I did that. From there, um, in 2002, I moved to Gainesville and started the program there, as you alluded to and um, was there for 20 years and built that program and was very proud of it. And we had a, a, a very productive and successful program there. And then as, you, as you're as you aware, in, on October 1st of this year, I moved to uh, a Northside to try to uh, grow and revitalize their program and, and, and do the same thing that we did up there. And that's our goal. Yeah, I think, I think um, that's gonna be really exciting. And I think we're gonna look forward to working with you um, you know, um, we know about, um, obviously coronary artery bypass surgery for CAD. Um, I guess, um, tell us what other surgeries you can perform in, um, you know, in, um, com combination or in, you know, exclusively of, of an open heart bypass surgery. Sure. So we do, as you, as you mentioned, we do a lot of bypass surgery. I would say that's, that's our number one procedure. We also do a lot of aortic valve surgery still, whether it be we're, we have in the last couple of years have have started doing more valve repair, in particular with valvular insufficiency of the aortic valve. We still do plenty of aortic valve replacements for aortic stenosis and some aortic insufficiency. 
We do a lot of work on the mitral valve. Uh, still, uh, most of our mitral, if we do solitary mitral valve, we try as, to the best of our ability to do minimally invasive mitral surgery. Uh, patients tolerate it much better. As you mentioned, we do a lot of concomitant surgery as well, which if a patient has valvular disease and then ultimately ends up having uh, va uh, coronary artery disease, we can combine these procedures and do aortic valve bypass surgery, mitral valve bypass surgery. Um, in addition to valvular disease, we, we, we do aneurysmal work on the aorta, in particular the ascending aorta. Um, and as you and I mentioned before the show, we, we, we follow these patients very closely. And a lot of these folks we don't need to necessarily operate on, but they need to be in the system and monitored closely with, with routine CT scans, either on a six months or yearly basis, to assure that these aneurysms don't grow to a dangerous level. Um, we do some, we do uh, ventricular remodeling surgery for heart failure patients and um, in particular patients who after heart attacks that have as we say, akinetic or dyskinetic ventricles. Um, those are kind of our main procedures that we, we, we tend to focus on. Um, maybe just, if you don't mind, maybe run through that, I guess the difference between on-pump, off-pump, the conduits you use, you know, the, the left internal mammary, the right internal mammary, when you use a radial veins from the legs, you know, cadaver, sure. perhaps, yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> so a routine patient that comes over from, from let's say, we'll just say your group sends a patient over and we try to get them over as fast as possible. There's In the Northside system, we are the only only hospital in the entire Northside system that does open heart surgery, and that's the, the hospital based in Lawrenceville and Gwinnett. So our goal is to get these patients over as fast as possible, and then we'll evaluate them. We'll look at the cardiac catheterization, see where the blockages are. Then in addition to seeing exactly how many, where the blockages are and how many bypasses we need to do, then we'll look at what conduit we want to use. In other words, what, what, what are we going to use to do these bypasses? And we, we always use the internal mammary artery on the left side. That's routinely used. We will oftentimes use the right internal mammary artery if the right coronary artery is a, a is acceptable for that vessel. And, the, the classic patient is a patient with over 80% or 90% blockage in the right coronary with a nice uh, vessel downstream that we can use the what we call the REMA, the right internal mammary artery. And we want to try to use that in situ. If we can't use it in situ, we might use it as a free graft. For example, I used that yesterday on a young patient. I used it as a free graft because it needed to go further downstream to actually use the use the use to use that conduit. Uh, in addition to the to the mammary arteries, we I often use the left radial artery. The left radial artery is another great arterial conduit that I think is underutilized. I I, I use it more often than not. Uh, and then obviously we use still use greater saphenous vein. All our saphenous veins are harvested uh, minimally invasive approach with endoscopic approach. So so after we have a patient that comes over, we look at the blood vessels, we look at their conduits, and then we end up operating on them and try to get them done in the next 24 to 48 hours. We're, we're fairly aggressive and we try to move the patient efficiently through the system because the last thing they want to do is be waiting on surgery. They they want to get most of the people that have to, that need to have heart surgery want it done yesterday. They want to get it done and they want to move through the system and get out of the hospital and start the recovery process. A routine patient will be in the hospital about three to four days after surgery. It's imperative that they try to do a lot of walking once they get home. 
we go through that process with them. We get them into cardiac rehab, and we have very, very good results with that with that routine. Well, that, that's excellent. Um, can you tell us a little about like on pump and off pump bypass, please? Sure, sure. I apologize. You had mentioned that. No, no problem. No problem. So, I said a lot. <laughs> and I'll just yeah. I I trained under Dr. Puskas at Emory. So I was fully trained in off-pump surgery, but what I've realized over time and just using common sense, so the majority of our cases that we still do are, are on-pump. I think we get a better revascularization. We get, I get a, a better technical result. I get more complete revascularization. I, I will use off-pump if I have a patient who has a, what I call a porcelain aorta or a, a grade four or grade five aorta with a significant amount of plaque that's a higher risk for stroke. The only advantage really for, for using off-pump surgery is what's been shown is really less less blood transfusions uh, perioperatively. But we tend to kind of uh, um, use off-pump surgery when necessary when we're worried about a patient having a stroke or has a bad aorta. Absolutely. Um, and off-pump off -pump, off -pump surgery is, is only utilized for coronary artery bypassing. It's not utilized for any valve procedures. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I, see, I see some variation between the surgeons about antiplatelets after bypass. Um, you know, anticoagulant, I think, obviously just going to be for sure. have atrial fibrillation or valve disease um, or, or um, yeah, have a mechanical valve. But, you know, some use aspirin, some use Plavix, and the length of time they want it. Um, what, what's your, your team's take on that? Yeah, I thought that was a great question. Um, you know, I think it, there's there's most of the data we use is subjective data. There's not a lot of objective data out there, but I tend to be fairly aggressive with dual antiplatelet therapy. If I have a patient who has a lot of plaque or I'm concerned about the vein quality or or anything, I will certainly start Plavix almost immediately uh the, the day of surgery after we complete the procedure and they're off the ventilator. And as far as their, their duration of therapy with dual antiplatelet, I'll usually keep them on Plavix four to six weeks until we get some good epithelialization of the conduits. And I feel comfortable that we're kind of over that, that early postoperative thrombosis risk. Once we get past that point, I'll usually just put them back to aspirin only. Yeah, and I think, you know, certainly for coronary work, PCI, the very, like, nuanced data about how long to use antiplatelets, we have Berlinta, we have Effian 2, um, but, I mean, I think I think it is interesting that you're saying, you know, a month or maybe a little longer, but doesn't have to be, like, sort of long-term. What's interesting is there's some really good data that long-term Aspirin or Plavix, Plavix might be lower risk of bleeding and maybe less MIs and stuff too. So it's sort of best of both worlds. So I know my patients that I have them on both after some event or vascularization a long time ago, or over a year, I should say, sometimes I just give them on Plavix only or Plavix every other day or something like that. And they seem to do fine. Sure. I agree with you. I think each 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 patient um, is individualized and you kind of got to look at everybody and and how much of how cumbersome is it for them to take Plavix? Are they at risk for bleeding? And but I, I agree with you. I think you know there there is certainly uh, we we utilize it more than a lot of folks. I can tell you that. Thank you. Um, that's very helpful. Um, 
you know, I, I know, you know, we do some varicose vein work um, and here in Canton and in uh, Cumming and, you know, really pretty straightforward. It's a common disease process, um, venous insufficiency and pretty straightforward procedures. Some very young people, but, you know, in the back of my head, I always think, what if they need this vein later for bypass surgery? And like, sure, it's, you know, what's what? What do you see? I mean, you're seeing probably more. There's a lot of vein clinics out there. What is it like when you see one? You're like, oh man, they they bladed those veins. Like, what what is your what is your thought when you see that? Well, I I agree. There is a, there. It's a great question. I think there a lot of patients benefit from ablations, injections, or stripping. But but we have to be careful. Um, not everybody needs that procedure that comes in with varicose veins. I think there's those patients that are very symptomatic can benefit from that. And they certainly, if we can, try not to do both legs because it is troublesome to us when we when a patient comes in and they've had both veins stripped out of their leg. Now, obviously, we we have alternatives. We can use bilateral mammaries, and as I mentioned, we often use the radial artery. So we have we have a backup plan for that, but I think from a patient population and a clinician population, we have to be careful uh, not to go overboard with with treatment of vein disease. I think that the patient, you know, needs to have a chronic uh, debilitating problem for us to to be aggressive with the treatment of vein disease. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I could at least speak for myself, and you could correct me if I'm wrong. In, in our clinics, you know, we these are usually like really big dilated varicose veins, not like sort of borderline and the people are symptomatic. And I honestly see a lot of people and I, probably every day I stop amlodipine and I stop gabapentin on people because that causes as much edema as, as vein disease. And I see people come from, you know, some of the pure vein clinics and they've, they've had all these ablations and they haven't stopped their calcium channel blockers and they're having edema from that. So um, you know, I, I definitely, um, um, I definitely agree that be conservative with these patients, try the compression, try the elevation and make sure that you're, you're doing it for the right reasons, these procedures. Cause, um, yeah, they're, they're, um, you don't want to burn that bridge down the road. Yeah. And I, you know, I think sometimes you can just treat the lower leg and leave the upper leg alone, the thigh in particular, because that's the, the you know, if you, if at least we have something left that we could utilize as a benefit for the patient if they ever end up uh, needing uh, bypass surgery. Excellent, thanks. Um, you know, I, I um, what's your thought about like removing the left atrial appendage, ligating it, sorry, and then um, like, do you do that on any sign of AFib or potential AFib? And then, and then do you also, um, still want them on anticoagulation for some period of time? I've, I've, I've seen different things so, and yeah. That's a great, great, great. I love these questions because it's it's what we deal with every day. So if you said five years ago, you asked me that question, I said we would only ligate the appendage and we were doing everything with a suture. We, were, we would just do a purse string suture around the base of the left atrial appendage and we would only do that procedure on patients with a history of paroxysmal AFib or a history of AFib, um, and we were the, and we were either at, we were asked to do that by the cardiologist or we were we were working on the mitral valve. Okay, 
So that was five years ago. Now, with the evolution of of, of um, devices that the EP doctors are, are utilizing, um, the the watchman, the it's become much more uh, in vogue, basically, to treat these patients uh, more aggressively. Okay, so now we have this device called an Atriclip, which is truly a five-second procedure for us to to add on to anything that we're doing. So if we're there for bypass surgery, and we're concerned this patient has a risk for AFib, or we the patient has a history of AFib, or the patient is chronic AFib or paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, it is really uh, a low. It adds no risk to the procedure to to place an atriclip, in my opinion. It's such a, a easy, very quick procedure. So to answer your question. Yes, we're being more aggressive with these patients. Do we do we do we do we have a, a a algorithm in place to utilize that? I would say no. It's again, it's more subjective. Do they have a history of AFib? Are you, you know, those are the things we're asking patients, and we we will add that procedure uh, along with either bypass or valvular disease. There's no question. Now, as far as the anticoagulation, that that's another good question. The EP, I my personal opinion is. You can you don't need to give any more anticoagulation if you've li if the appendage is ligated and they're on aspirin. I'm good with that, but the EP folks, as you know, they like to keep keep these patients on Eliquis or or, or something of that nature, Coumadin. And I don't know their duration, but oftentimes it's four to six weeks more, maybe a little bit longer before they taper that off. Yeah, it seems like it seems like. I, I've, my experience has probably been slightly the di different where the surgeons sometimes say that there's still smoke, you could still have it, have clots. And so you maybe want to continue it, it continue, it de decreases the risk. And I think the, most of the cardiologists are pretty comfortable stopping it after about a month or six weeks or something, you know, when you're through that, you know, post-operative period, you know, when you're pretty much headed towards cardiac rehab. Um, but right. yeah, you know, it's, it's not probably not as, it's sort of like the Plavix question post bypass. There's not that much like good randomized data and they may, may, they, they may never be, you know? Yeah, but hope, hopefully I agree with your question though. I think with time that, that, that certainly needs to be studied and I may, I may be, I may be uh, behind the times here. I may need to, to be more educated with that, but I do think that that's something that we do, we do need to look at, you know, do these patients really need to continue on anticoagulation and and if they do for how long yeah we'll get correlated at least from the watchman which has you know which were trials and stuff and this is to me this is a better closure than a watchman with uh, the atrial clip right um i would agree so i was i i think this is going very well i, I and as you've probably known dan i think that my attention span is probably like about 15 minutes. So we're about 15 minutes. So we'll continue, but let's say this is the end of part one and then we'll start part sure. two. Okay? So we'll do, this will be two podcasts over two episodes. All right, thank you everyone. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for another cardiology focused episode.